Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend and Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masach Sachim, daf Samachay, 65. Some of you may have noticed yesterday that we also called it daf Samachay, 65. Uh, that kind of thing happens all the time, actually, when we record. We usually catch each other. Um, didn't happen yesterday. So you're not, day, you know, you're not dreaming if you heard that twice. Um, but anyhow, today is the actual real 65. So on today's agenda, we're going to finish up the fifth, fifth parak uh, with all of its discussion of the actual process of the Korban Pesach. And I want to get started with this first bit that's right at the top of the dot. Yatzdakat Rishonat, right? Where it talks about that the first group left and then the second group would come in and eventually the third group would come in. So the Gemara wants to talk a little bit about this third group. Tana, we learn in Nebraisa. Hini kret kat atzlanit. This was called the lazy group. Now, this is very interesting. Why would it be called the lazy group? Now, presumably it's that because they procrastinated and they waited so that they would have to be in this last group, right? That their Korban Pesach got shechted later. The Gemara here obviously asks, you know, the, the question, right? Right? How is it not possible to not have this third group, right? We began at the beginning of our discussion of this mission in the Gemara about how we had to have three groups and maybe three groups within each of these three groups. So what what should they have done? In other words, we have to have people who are going to be in this third group. So the Gemara is asking, how could we call them the Kat Atzlani? Why would we name them as being lazy? And so the Gemara answers here, even so, they should have like sort of hurried themselves to be in the first group. Kidditanya, as we learned in Abraisa, Rabbi, Rabbi Omer, Rabbi Huda Nasi says, It's not possible for the world to be or to function basically without the perfume merchants and without the tanners. Happy is he whose occupation is a perfume merchant, right? Presumably you smell good. It's a lovely sort of occupation to have. Oy lo lamisha umanato borsi. But woe to him whose occupation is that of a tanner, right? And presumably that's because the people who tan leather, right? We all know it, it has a particular odor to it. The Yif Charlie Olam belos harim uvelo nekebot. Similarly, the world cannot exist without males or females. Ashre mishaba nabs harim. Happy is he whose children are male. Oy lo mishaba nab nekebot. And woe to him whose children are females. Now, Obviously, this isn't sitting well with me or with many of our learners. <laughs> um, but look, I think this is, I think the nicer way to put this is, you know, the cynical way to say this is a completely misogynistic statement, you know, of the Gemara. Um, I think another way to look at it is, look, we live in a time where being a woman is, it's kind of okay. <laughs> and I think certainly in the time of the Gemara, uh, being a woman really had its own set of hardships. And, you know, some of the Mepharshim explained here it's that with a daughter or, you know, with women, we're always worried about them being married or about them being supported or about their safety. Um, and so that's really what, you know, the Gemara here is. It's, it's a, having a woman is a woman is a constant sort of a state of worry. Um, I think I think also this is an economic comment, meaning we're talking about the parenting. Right. So the idea that if you have sons who are going to follow you into the fields or whatever, and they're going to help with the heavy lifting, then you are economically better off than if you have daughters whom not only do you have to feed and clothe, 
but they're less of a, an economic boon. And then you have to marry them off. And doesn't that also cost money? Meaning, I don't think it's about love, right? It's not a comment on a personal relationship as much as it is a, a societal structure, which obviously is not how we live today, thank God. But I don't think that it's, you said it could, you could just read it as, you know, misogynistic. I don't, I don't read it as negative, except for that it sounds negative to our ears because it's so foreign in the way we live. It wasn't that far in a hundred years ago. You know, it's not, it's not just now that it's, uh, now, now is when it's become dramatically different, but, but it wasn't that different that even not that long ago. Right. And I think we have to respect that, you know, the Gemara is still written within a particular cultural context. Certainly this isn't a phrase I'm putting on some empowerment t-shirt, you know, (laughs) but, um, but I think here, what's interesting is, you know, yes, this is a difficult passage. But I think the overall passage, particularly the piece of, you know, the the perfumer and the tanner and just this idea of the third group is, is, you know, I think this is a tension that sort of exists in the world. Right. Certain things have to exist. This third group had to exist. But is it the best of the groups? It's not the best. And so that's kind of what Rebbe is saying also. Right. We have to have the things that make things smell good. We also have to have the tanners to make leather good. It's not a nice job and it's not something that smells good. Both of those things really need to be in the world. We have things that are good and we have things that are bad, things that are more desirable or more coveted or more prestigious and things that are less. So, but it's interesting to sort of see, uh, you know, this Gemara sort of come full circle from the beginning point, you know, right after the Mishnah where it says you have to have three groups and three groups within three and sort of this celebration of the three you know, based on the uh, passage using the, the, you know, the Sukim using the words Kahal, Edan, Yisrael. And then it's sort of circling back here. And it is making a comment that like, you know, those who are in that third group, you know, why, why did you get yourself in that third group? And I think you even see that a little bit hinted to in the Mishnah by the fact that the Mishnah talked about, you know, that they never got through the full Halal even, right? That they only Right. It said the third group, it only got to a, a certain point within the hollow. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that to me is also a, um, you know, it's a little bit of a put down uh, that's there. Right. It says uh, I'm just trying to find it, it says Ahapti Kiyishma Hashem, which is not even so far into the hollow itself. I wouldn't even say it's you're halfway done with the hollow. So I think even the Mishnah has that hint of a little bit of a put down of the third group that. You came, you're giving Korba Pesach, you don't even get to say the full Hallel while you're doing that mitzvah. It's a little bit not so nice. And you should have wanted to sort of really participate in those full groups of the first and second. Okay. Uh, as somebody who has spent enough of my time running late, I, always, I don't like this idea at all, right? That being, being in the negative, being in the third group, being a negative thing. And then I remember that a, a good portion of my time, I'm also, you know, I get there very, I get to things very punctually. So, I, you know, it's, I think that there's both, there has to be both in this, right? Like in terms of who arrives when that, that you know, sets up the groups. I don't, you know, you said you want to see this in a movie. I think there's more to it, right? That we don't get from the stuff in the year in, year out of how did this really come, come to be experienced. A hundred percent. You know, and now we're going to get to, you know, and I sort of fought over. That's a joke. Who got to do this next <laughs> section? 
Joanne, I'll hand it over well, to you. Well, I'm gonna right. I'm gonna bring us back to quite literally the floor of the Beit Hamikdash. Right, we you'll recall we have in the mission of this line of this aspect of Rabbi Yehuda says that the Kohen would fill up a cup with the blood from the floor that was mixed together. So there's several different there's blood from several different animals in the one cup. Tani Rabbi Yehuda from this mixture. Because let's say that the blood would would spill from one of them from the from this korban, then the cup would contain a small amount of that same animal, and by sprinkling it on the mizbeach, on the altar, then it kind of makes sure that the korban is a good korban, even if not all the blood would get there in the most direct manner. Um, now, this is a little bit beyond what I know about the sprinkling of blood and so on for the carbonate. I do believe we will get more into this in the more general categories, not the carbon Pesach, but the actual procedure of the carbonate, uh, you know, in other Masachdot. Um, but here, I would say that we are, you know, it, it talks about being ankle deep. I was going to say knee deep. You know, this is really the messiness and the, you'll forgive me, the smelliness and the very extreme physicality of the carbonate, um, where there, you know, it's not just that, oh, we'll just sprinkle some, you know, some uh, solution or some potion onto the Mizbeach, right? This is the blood of an animal. And the question of how it is that we sla- slaughter animals and, and they we offer them to as carbonate to Hashem is a perpetual philosophical conundrum, right? In terms of why is this okay? Why is it mandatory? And the discussion of whether, you know, this is a machlok and it's a big dispute between Rambam and Ramban about whether that blood on the altar is representing the person who is offering the korban. Now, that's usually not talking about a korban Pesach when they, when they do talk about that kind of korban. So I, I want to say something, you know, profound about all this blood. If you're reading the daf in all of its glory, you know, all of the words here, you will see a tremendous amount of blood. And the procedure is... Uh, like I say, very physical. Um, and beyond that question of, are you supposed to be offering yourself on the Mizbech in place of the Korban? And we obviously don't do that. Um, I don't have, as yet, I don't have much more of uh, great significance to say. So I'm going to come back to the text itself. That's always a good solution. Right. I said to Rabbi Yehuda, one second, because remember, this is generations after the actual pouring on the Mizbeach, right? He's he's learning it. He's not doing it. And the Chachamim said, one second, when you're talking about the blood that you've collected from the floor, you know, it's already put in a cup, and that's a vessel. And the moment it's in a vessel, then isn't that no longer acceptable to be sprinkled on the Mizbeach? You've gathered it up, and that's no longer the, I would say, like the, the raw offering. So the Gemara says, how do they know that, that blood was not, that this blood, um, how do they know that it had not been received in a vessel, meaning ever, right? So the Chacham say, again, to Rabbi Huda, what did they, the, the Gemara recants and says, what did they say to Rabbi Huda? Perhaps this blood has not been received in a kli and is therefore unfit to be sprinkled on the Mizbech. And it kind of revisits the exact 
uh, wording of what was going on here and what the concern is. And then Rabbi Huda says to them, I also was only talking about blood that had already been collected in a vessel, meaning you wanted, apparently, you wanted to be collected in a vessel to be able to then go sprinkle on the Mizbeach. Um, and then the Gemara takes it back again. Maniada, the Gemara is going to ask in the opposite direction. How do they know? How does Rabbi Huda know that the blood that was collected from the floor had been received, meaning received from the animal in a vessel? And here we're back to our, our claim, which we have talked about quite a fair bit, that the Kohanim are meticulous and eager, right? And that they, and they will, you know, do everything right is the real point here, that they are vigilant and they will make sure to know that they are receiving all the blood as they should have done in a vessel. I mean, then you might not wonder why it's all over the floor. Izrizin amai mishtapech, and that's exactly what the Gemara says. If they're so vigilant, then why did it spill? Why is there something to be picked up from the floor to begin with? Agav's vizutayu da'avzi mishtapech. Because they were so, Izrizin, because they were so vigilant and so speedy and eager, so that's how it spilled. And of course, the fact that something could spill, I don't think is necessarily the fault to, to fault their... Um, their motivation or their energy, right? And then, of course, the idea is that you could, Rabbi Yehuda says, right, that you can pick up, you can fill a cup with the mixture of all the blood, whatever that's found on the floor, and sprinkle it on the altar. And and in doing so, make sure that whatever korbanot would have been offered from the animals that had the same blood that's both on the floor, you are kind of completing their korbanot. Um, the rest of the daf here really does get pretty graphic in terms of the actual act of shrita and the blood and so on. So I'm going to, uh, you know, it's there for the reading. We're not um, hiding anything here. I just find the next, the last little bit on, well, it's not the last bit on the daf. It's the last bit of the, this pair, um, you know, is a little bit, grabs me a little bit more to talk about it. So what happens? Um, so skip a bit. It says, Tanya, Amar lahen rebihudu lachachamim lidivrechem lama pokukin et hazara. So Rabbi Huda says to the Chachamim, why did, you know, if we're talking, if you're saying that there's no need to, to take a cup of blood from the, from the floor, that's the Chachamim's position, then why did they plug up the drains of the Beit HaMikdash courtyard? Meaning, instead of letting all the blood flow out, why would they allow them to collect it with a cup to begin with and then offer it on the Mizbech? And it's perhaps maybe something, and again, I plead ignorance thus far, give me some years um, as we go through the death, but to the degree to which this is about the Korban Pesach because there are so many animals being offered and so many um, Korban notes, the blood of so many animals that need to be, you know, need to make it to the Mizbeach, perhaps that's why it's more important than usual, let's say, that there's a Tarovet, that there's a mixture that will get there. Amrulo, shevachu livnei aron sheyachu ad arkavotehem badam. So Chachamim said, you know, again, the question is why didn't they why do they allow the drains to be stopped up if it's not to collect the blood? So Chachamim say it's, it's a praiseworthy thing for B'nai Aharon, for the Kohanim, to walk in blood up to their ankles, meaning, and in doing so, they are demonstrating how much love they have for their role in the Karbanot. And I'm thinking, really? That's how they demonstrate love for their avoda in the Beit HaMikdash? But perhaps so. Again, my sensibilities are... are a little bit shattered here, but but I understand that the again this is a really different set of norms. So the Gemara goes on How could they walk in blood up to their ankles? Doesn't the blood then get in between the feet 
of the Kohanim and the floor. Lach hu Meaning, the point is that then you have a chatzitza, you have a barrier, you have some kind of uh, intermediary, whatever, between the feet of the Kohanim and the floor. And they're supposed to be walking barefoot fully on the floor. They can't be getting uh, any blood in between. And so the the answer is, no, but it's wet. So because it's wet, it's not really going to be any kind of barrier. These, these liquids are considered as when they are dry, let's just list them off again, blood, ink, milk, and honey, when they are dry, um, they are a chatzitza. They do, you know, are, they aren't in, um, a barrier. Lachin ain't chatzitzin, but when they are wet, they do not. Um, okay, so the idea here is, again, this, this very bloody scene is apparently an act of avodat Hashem, and and I said when I say apparently, I don't mean this with any disparagement. I just mean that again, my sensibilities are a little bit shaken by it, and the idea of being, you know, making sure that everybody's animal's blood is makes it to the mizbeach is clearly of great importance, and the question of how it's set up to make sure that that will happen or it does it have to happen that way is this is the crux of this machloket. Um, Okay, I just want to go to the very end of the... Well, I just want to say Um, one thing here. I mean, what strikes me about this is, you know, there's sort of two pieces to this Gemara. On the one hand, sort of wanting to celebrate, or at least I think it acknowledges this was a particular type of scene and did look a certain way and may have been experienced a certain way. And it is praising the Kohanim that they're the ones who have to do this work. Um, But I also like how it pivots to like, well, what are the halachic implications of it being like that. And, you know, the idea that the, you know, the not having the chatzitza between their feet and the clothing, I, I just like, that's so classic Gemara, you know? Like, we'll, we'll talk about how it, it feels a little bit, but then we're going to go straight into like, what's the halachic implications of this? Yeah, I think that it's a really good point. I think also it reminds us, I think that Rabbi Yehuda and Chachamim are debating this not in the context of the Beit HaMikdash. They're not in the Azara. They're not doing the Avoda, right? They're talking about it afterwards, as are we. Uh, so I just want to jump down now to the last line. It's really the end of the Mishnah and the end of the, um, it's end, the end of the, this part of the Daf before we get to Perak Hamishi. I'm sorry, before we get to Perak Shishi. We're at the very end of the fifth Perak. Yatstakat Rishonavachor. That's right, as, as they're leaving, which you'll recall is, in the Mishnah, the long, long, long Mishnah. It's a hard word to pronounce. So the first group exits the Beit HaMikdash. They've got their Korbanot, meaning they've got their Korban Pesach with them, the part that they can take with them. And then we have a Brighton that's cited here that everybody, each and every person would take their, their Korban on its hide, on its skin, and throw it over their shoulder behind them and carry it home that way. And of Elisha, they carried it home in the manner of these Arab merchants who were called Tayaut. tayaut. Um, and they, these were like, it's a reference to nomadic tribes, and that's how they wandered, and that's how they carried their possessions, I guess, on their back. And I'm so struck by, again, it, it brings us back to the, to the scene, right? That like the the entire parak here has been very 
um, put us there, you know, like with all of the halachic discussion of what, what's going to happen with the Korban Pesach and with your intent and who's participating and all of this is, you know, somewhere in there is this, um, ta- uh, what's the word? Tapestry, not tapestry, pageantry. I'm sorry, there's the word I want. Pageantry of how the Korban Pesach was, you know, really lived to the extent of how they carried the, the animal on their backs as they left. And then you can imagine everybody's going with their group of at least 10 people and they're going to set up shop and barbecue and, and have a good grand old time for their Seder Lela Pesach. No, exa- I, I think that's the perfect word. I think we really got to have a little bit of a glimpse into the pageantry of this whole, uh, you know, this whole evening of the Korban Pesach. Um, even though it may be bloody or a little bit not used to what we're used to in terms of preparing food. But I think at the end of the day, we really could all agree that it is quite beautiful. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcasts. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about this bloody beautiful page. And until tomorrow, go and, oh, so sorry. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. Thank you.